Zarathustra's Prologue, Part 1 When Zarathustra was thirty years old, he abandoned his home and the lake of his home and went into the mountains. Here he enjoyed his spirit and his solitude, and for ten years did not tire of them. At last, however, there was a change in his heart. And so one morning, with the dawn of morning, he rose, stepped out before the sun, and spoke to it thus. Greetings, great star. What would your happiness be, were it not for those whom you illumine? For ten years you have come up here to my cave. You would have grown weary of your light and of this course, without me, my eagle, and my serpent. But we were waiting for you every morning, took from you your overflow, and also blessed you for it. Behold, I am overburdened with my wisdom. Like the bee that has gathered too much honey, I need hands outstretched to receive it. I should like to bestow and distribute, until the wise among human beings once again become glad of their folly, and the poor once again of their riches. For that, I must descend into the depths, just as you do in the evening when you go down behind the sea and still bring light to the underworld, you overrich star. I must, like you, go under, as human beings call it, to whom I would go down. So bless me then, you tranquil eye, who can look without envy even upon all too great happiness. Bless the cup that wants to overflow that the water may flow from it golden and carry everywhere the reflection of your delight. Behold, this cup wants to become empty again, and Zarathustra wants to become human again. Thus began Zarathustra's going under. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the audio lecture series on Thus Spoke Zarathustra. We've finally made it through my introductions, and now we're into the introduction created by Nietzsche himself with Zarathustra's prologue. You just heard section 1 of 10. Uh, so before we get into the, my analysis or things I want to point out about this particular section, a couple of notes on the prologue overall. As I mentioned, it's 10 sections. And in terms of the amount of plot development that you're going to see in this book, as opposed to... Nietzsche's writings on various topics. The 10 sections of the prologue, even though they constitute, ooh, I don't know, 10, 15 pages, those 10, 15 pages contain probably more plot action inside of them than any other range of 10 to 15 pages in this book. So it is quite a bit different, and therefore my conversation about the 10, 15 pages is going to be a bit different. Um, since it is more narrative than the other sections. There's a lot more imagery that we're going to come across. And since the imagery is trying to portray certain things about Zarathustra, certain things about uh, another old character that we're going to meet in the next section, and certain things about uh, people that Zarathustra meets in a market square, that imagery all depends on a lot of Nietzsche's later ideas that he's going to discuss and how we should be interpreting it. Um, I know the first couple of times I read through this prologue, not a lot stuck out. I s sort of spent most of my time focusing on the things that Zarathustra was saying 
that are more philosophically based uh, rather than any of the allegory or metaphor or anything like that because I simply didn't have any understanding of what Nietzsche was trying to get at when he was giving some of this imagery. So I will mention some of the important things when it comes to imagery, uh, but I will not be right now getting into all of it simply because it would require too much explanation up front of Nietzschean ideas that we'll get to in later sections. So once we get through and we become more acquainted with some of Nietzsche's ideas, I will be returning to certain things that were brought up in the prologue. So if you're an experienced Nietzsche scholar or someone who likes reading his books and you're sitting there listening to me miss all these important sentences or allegories or metaphors, um, this is my excuse. And later on, when I've sucked your attention for, I don't know, 50 more of these podcasts and I miss something, then, then you can yell at me. So now to get into the actual prologue. Section one is where we meet Zarathustra. So the very first thing we find out is that Zarathustra, when he was 30 years old, left his home and went into the mountains. He stayed there for about 10 years. And then one day, 10 years later, there was a change in his heart. There was a change in what he wanted to do. There was a change in what he wanted. And he starts into this big soliloquy talking to the sun. You can really see that first part is taking the Zarathustra, the historical Zarathustra, after he's come up with his idea of the world being fundamentally good and evil, everything in front of you being a, some sort of conflict between good and evil, he came up with that philosophy, lived with it, made decisions by it, acted in accordance with it, and for some reason, living with that caused him when he was 30 years old to leave his home and go into the mountains just to think about life. And so I really see this 10-year period as trying to work through some of the errors that the historical Zarathustra might have seen with his philosophy. And so the Nietzschean Zarathustra spends 10 years, he works through some of these issues. That's a pretty good sign that some of the changes that, if you're looking at this whole lecture series or this book as sort of a self-help, self-development guide, that, that allegory that it takes 10 years to make all these serious changes, it may not take 10 years, but it will take a lot of time for us if we're going through and taking these things seriously and trying to really critically examine a lot of the underlying beliefs that many of our conscious and unconscious decisions and actions are based on. So Zarathustra takes 10 whole years to figure it out. He's sort of the first one trying to figure out what the better view of reality is compared to sort of previous modes of thought. And since our actions depend on those things, he, he thinks this is an important thing. He takes the time to do it, and that's what he does. Uh, so he, he does that, steps out before the sun, and starts talking to it. And the speech that he gives, there's a, a number of important points, but you can see from this soliloquy that Zarathustra is very thankful. There's a big air of thanksgiving in everything that he's saying. You can tell that all the experiences that he's faced, he sort of appreciates. All the help that he gets, he sort of appreciates. And even the difficult tasks that he might be coming upon and some of the challenges that he's going to face doing those things, he appreciates. So that's sort of one thing that really stands out about Zarathustra as a type. And it also sort of points to the type, of, the type of personality one might wish to have towards reality in general, being very thankful for all of your experiences, everything that's happening. And we will find that that's an important thing in Zarathustra. 
uh, in this book and in the philosophy of Nietzsche generally. So Zarathustra comes out and he says, Greetings, great star. What would your happiness be were it not for those whom you illumine? Uh, for ten years you've come up here, you've given me your light and all your overflow, and my, me and my animals were here waiting for you every morning. And so this sort of shows, uh, one thing I will mention is that, that the value of things is dependent upon someone who can make use of the thing that's being given. Um, so this sort of goes against some of the Platonic philosophy that we spoke about in the introduction and a lot of the Christianity that we talked about where reality in itself is this very good thing. It's infinitely good and it's good in itself and humans are merely contingent when it comes to actually evaluating that thing. So Nietzsche right here is basically showing, no, the valuation of things is entirely dependent upon humans and other creatures that can make use of the things that exist within reality. Um, so he goes on, he's very thankful to the sun for giving him all this stuff, for providing him with all sorts of wisdom. And then Zarathustra says, look, I have so much wisdom now. I spent 10 years thinking about the things. I have so much wisdom, I'm like a bee that's gathered too much honey. I need to get rid of some of this. Uh, he'd like to bestow and distribute until the wise among human beings are once again become glad of their folly and the poor once again of their riches. So not only is Zarathustra a very thankful person, but he also wants to be able to help other people. He wants to bestow. He wants to distribute. And you can tell here that he wants, he wants to be able to do that such that people... It's almost a complete revaluation of their valuation system. He wants the wise among human beings to become glad of their folly. So he's saying, you know, wise people should be very happy for foolishness, which when you first think about it, seems like the opposite thing. Like wise people are never foolish. They're so smart and they try and just be very intelligent about things. Why should they be, they should be upset when they're being foolish because they're not being wise. Uh, and similar with poor people, like why are the poor becoming happy with their riches? What does that mean? And you can sort of see that Zarathustra, after taking this 10 years off and thinking through this new view of reality, he, he understands that if he's successful in his mission, he'll be able to help everyone sort of see their lives in a better way, see their lives in a much more thankful way, where even the wise are thankful for their foolishness and even the, the poor are thankful for their riches. Uh, and I think that if you think about whether it's people you know or people you see on TV or or people you see in movies, there's constant complaining, there's constant people just getting mad about their situation and not really doing anything about it, or, or taking weird things too seriously. And I think that Nietzsche's really trying to come along and say, you know, everyone, like, you should take the things in reality a, a bit more lightly, you should be able to laugh at yourself, you should be able to enjoy the things that you do have, and uh, again, there's a, a number of reasons for this that we will get into the, in the book, but the general thought to keep in mind is that Zarathustra has this insight into reality. He sort of has gone through a lot of the psychological ups and downs that are necessary in reinstalling some view of reality and letting that flow through to the way that you treat things, the way that you deal with things. And he thinks that his philosophy is useful to everyone in order for them to value things in a more healthy way. And so he says, you know, I want to distribute, I want to bestow, but for all this, I have to go to, into the depths. I must go into the depths. Uh, I need to go under, as human beings call it, to whom I would go down. And so this is, uh, 
we're going to see in this book a a lot of allegories that have reference to heights and depths. There's going to be a lot of overs and hires and unders and abysses that we're going to have to deal with. And the proper way to see this is sort of... A good way to put it is uh, there's going to be a lot of high points when mentally the way that our spirits are working and the way that our soul is feeling seem very elevated. We will have profoundly fine feelings. Uh, and it's sort of, uh, if you listen to a particularly nice symphony and you're in the right mood, uh, you can reach almost an ecstatic height of joy um, where your spirit and your soul just feel so sweet and the music just stands out so nicely to you. And that's sort of what one might describe as being the heights, being at the heights of something. And we'll also see spots where Nietzsche uses the heights to describe uh, different skill levels, the, the highest things that we're capable of. And often the recognition of that or the performance of those things will be associated with some of these high feelings or high capabilities. So we'll see a lot of that too. Uh, whereas with the depths or being in an abyss or sort of feeling a lot of those feelings that Nietzsche is describing with that terminology, maybe your most depressed, your lowest points when you're feeling so low and you feel like a miserable creature that isn't worth his own uh, carbon atoms, that uh, sometimes we feel miserable, we, f we feel useless, we feel like we just take away from everyone around us. Nietzsche here, he says, or Zarathustra here says, you know, in order to bestow and distribute, to do this big task that uh, I'm the only one that can do because I'm, I'm the first one to discover it, there's going to be a lot of suffering involved. But even, even his descriptions of this are filled with this sort of feeling of thanksgiving. He says, I have to descend into the depths just as you do in the evening when you go down behind the sea and still bring light to the underworld, you overrich star. So he's looking at the star... And there's this whole sort of metaphor with the star, which if you, outside of this book, if you think from a physics perspective, stars are just sort of these giant fireballs that are only fireballs because so much matter, so much stuff has compacted itself into one entity that it explodes under its own pressure. It brings forth light. It brings forth goodness. It brings forth the source of life. And so Zarathustra, he's sort of idolizing this star type thing. And we'll see the star imagery come up throughout the book later, where if you basically think about an entity or a person or someone who has brought so many different things, so many different pieces of matter, whether it's hydrogen or helium, as in the case with actual stars, or with Zarathustra bringing together so much wisdom and insight and character traits and personality traits and uh, aspects of self-development and different things within his own soul and within his own spirit that he he's sort of like a son himself he he wants to bestow he wants to give and distribute and bring life and happiness and joy and uh, good things to people and so with this imagery he also says you know just as you you beautiful star you go down behind the sea and even bring light to the underworld and so this will get into some of Zarathustra's things with negative experiences also being very positive uh, from like a growth perspective and other things like that. And that people who want to be stars themselves, who want to become better versions of themselves and just take so much into them that they have so much to bestow and benefit, whether it's their friends or their family or people at work or 
whoever it is, they just want to be the type of person that brings light and energy to, to a certain place, that you are going to face negative experiences and that you have to kind of keep on trucking through those and still try and be positive and light bringing whatever because those times in our lives are often very formative. Uh, as I'm sure many of you who've gone through difficult times, whether it's anxiety or depression or uh, difficult times at work or with your spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend or friends, like often difficult times in the short term are very bad, but if you keep going through them, uh, you get a lot of value out of it. It's one of those Winston Churchill quotes that people like to say is, uh, quote, if you find yourself in hell, keep going. And it's it's sort of right. Like even if even if you're in a period in your life, whether it's existential anxiety or existential doubt or just things are going poorly, and you may think that there's no hope or there's nothing that's ever going to get better, that you, 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 you're never going to feel better, um, that's not... That's not the way it is. Things do get better, and it's often those very negative experiences that bring forward the best amount of positive growth in who we are. And I sort of see all the painful experiences that I've been through as immensely valuable for bestowing upon me some of the most excellent, uh, whether it's personality traits or skills or just strength of character to endure difficult things and then to also empathize with other people and help them get through difficult times, which for me is a very, very fulfilling thing because I know how bad it can be and I, I want to be able to help people. So Zarathustra here again, he's just hitting us with one line with something that I could go on for 20 minutes with. So <laughs> strap in everyone because this is going to be a very long lecture series. So Zarathustra, yep, he says, you know, I'll have to go under just that's part of it, but I'm still thankful that uh, that has to happen. Um, so the next line is one that I love so much. Uh, so, and it just gets gets forward such, such a positive aspect of someone's personality, such a positive uh, disposition to have. And if you meet someone who has this disposition, it's just... Whenever you spend time with them, you feel good. You know that they're just like a good person, like a great person who wants to do a lot of great things and wants you to succeed and wants wants things to be generally better. And he says, So bless me then, you tranquil eye, who can look without envy even upon all too great happiness. Wow, that that thing about looking without envy even upon all too great happiness. And to me, that... It just means so much because I know there are tons of people out there that hate it when other people around them are either doing better than them, they have a better job, they're smarter, they're better looking, they're whatever it is, in whatever aspect that they have more and that they're happier because of it or they, they have more. There's a lot of people who's disposition towards that is so negative and so bitter and so cruel that whenever they they get this amazing feeling of schadenfreude which is a good german word they get that amazing feeling of schadenfreude and be feeling happy when that person suffers when that person has some personal failing and i personally know a number of people like that there there's people there's family members there's even friends there's coworkers. most people 
can't stand when something good is happening to someone else or when someone else seems to have their their life together and this line really stands out to me and it really i think encapsulates a lot of things that if you take seriously the messages in this book and you really work on yourself i think you will become one of those uh, people who who doesn't do that who's thankful for what they have who's thankful for who they are and who they're becoming and I know that some of my best friends, whenever I describe something I've done well at or I've succeeded at or, oh, I got this promotion or, oh, things are going well for me in life, I know that some of my friends are very, very happy. Just They're just pleased that I'm succeeding. But I know I've caught myself in some conversations where I'm, not, where I'm trying not to brag, but I'm just describing, oh, I'm working on this, I'm doing this, and things are going well. And I, sometimes I get that little conscientious nag in my head where I say, oh, no, no, you should, you should calm down because this is making this person feel bad. And I don't know. I try very hard in my life to be the type of person that whatever's going on in my life, if I've, uh, some relationship has gone bad or I've had an argument with someone in my family or whatever it is, I try to, as hard as I can, and it's become a natural instinct through, uh, taking very seriously some of the ideas that we're going to see in this book my instincts have changed to be just like so happy for the people around me and and how they're doing and really just wanting them to become great and have a have a interesting and good time with life i really do believe that using the imagery in this book and trying to compare yourself to it and trying to think oh do i do that Am I, am I the kind of person that can look without envy even upon all too great happiness? Or am I one of those people that when my, uh, when my friend is dating someone new and has a new girlfriend and I don't, I get angry? Or, or when someone gets a promotion and I don't, I get pissed off and I hate them for it? Um, am I that sort of bitter person? Are those feelings come from bit, coming from bitterness? Or those feelings coming from competitiveness or what, whatever they're coming from. I try as hard as I can to just picture the things in this book and work towards the ones that stand out to me as being beautiful. As being a, a great way of being. And that one to me is a very big one. So Zarathustra closes off the section saying, Bless the cup that wants to overflow, that the water may flow from it golden, and carry everywhere the reflection of your delight. Behold, this cup wants to become empty again, and Zarathustra wants to become human again. So here he's saying that he has so much inside him, skills, assets, insights, that he wants to bring to humanity rather than just keep them to himself. And that last one, Zarathustra wanting to become human again, um, for me, I've always sort of read this as a critique against the platonic, Christian, uh, mystical religion type understanding of associating oneself with reality or associating with oneself with the one or associating oneself with God. And because on a certain metaphysical level, that's true, that you're a part of reality. You're the universe conscious of itself. And a lot of people, I think, when they have that experience, whether through, whether through some mystical experience or hearing someone say, oh, you know, you're the universe conscious of itself or a lot of people who have psychedelic trips on certain uh, drugs will have this experience of ego dissolution and sort of communion with God or reality or the one or whatever. 
and they try and sort of live in that. They say, well, you know, this is true, and this seems to be the highest level of truth that you can get to, that you are sort of one with everything. And this challenge, the, this thing that Zarathustra says that he wants to become human again, seems to me to be a direct attack against that that says, you know, even though that's true, I'm also human. And while the universe and life and reality have these certain characteristics about them that are either incredibly fascinating or incredibly deep or incredibly sort of infinitely unknowable or hard to access or mysterious. Zarathustra here is really trying to say, you know, that is true, but I want to become human again. I, I don't want to escape my struggles in this transitory life. That's how a Christian would describe it. I don't want, I don't want to associate with the struggles in this. I want to I want to be at union with God. I want to live in profound joy for all my days, and I can't wait to, for when I die and leave this body and go back to being in infinite joy with God. This is a very, this is a very good statement against that, and we're going to see a lot of the reasons why. But Zarathustra, having lived with that and having had to go into the mountains to really think through his view of reality a bit more, he says, "You know what? I've done that, and I've been separate from humanity for so long, relearning everything." That I, and the results of that lead me to this feeling of thanksgiving for being alive and being a part of reality, but also really wanting to become human again and take on human life and not just try and escape humanity for whatever reasons and live in this perfect reality with a capital R worshipping uh, perspective. Um so that's the that's sort of the last line of the Zarathustra's prologue that Zarathustra says, and in the next section we're going to meet a character that really sort of shows the other side of what happens if you don't want to be uh, if you don't want to become human again. If you take the other philosophy, the older philosophy, the Platonic Christian philosophy that has reigned for two thousand years, and if you take that to the extreme, and so. That, that, before we end, I just want to finish off with sort of elaborating a bit on this Zarathustra type and how humanity develops its ideas. And, and I think that the first couple of sections, this section that we've just gone over and the next one with the old holy men who we're going to meet shortly, will really benefit from that and that a lot of the way that we read this book can be informed by keeping this in mind, that in whatever field of human progress you want to talk about, that the development of the human type depends on the highest achievements of its highest types. And this is, that's, that's a very Nietzschean idea. I think he says somewhere, basically, I think I just paraphrased what he said. He said, you know, the, the, the achievement of humanity, the continual progress of humanity, depends chiefly upon the 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 attainment the highest attainment of the highest type and so what does that mean so in any human field that you want to consider whether it's sports music arts uh, painting uh, writing um, management leadership uh, singing that these characteristics develop through time the, the type Homo sapiens is a developing type, uh, and we're continually pushing the boundaries of what's possible in every field. So 
whether it's the Olympics and Usain Bolt running the fastest 100-meter dash and or the, any swim team where Michael Phelps sets new world records all the time, you can sort of picture that the field of human excellence in athletics is continually being pushed forward and that that pushing forward takes a lot of hard work. It takes a, takes a lot of training on the part of Usain Bolt. It takes a lot of training on the part of Michael Phelps. It takes a lot of hard work to continually push what's possible forward. And it also takes the development of uh, it takes the development of even the type human being to be able to do many of those things. So 450,000 years ago, when there were no human beings around who could even take instructions, it would be very hard to find someone who could sprint in a straight line for 100 meters because they just wouldn't even understand the concept of sprinting in a straight line for 100 meters. So there's the aspect of human development in both the hard work that we ourselves put in towards something, but then also the continual development of the, the biological type of Homo sapiens. So this is, once we get into sections three or four, this is going to be exactly what Nietzsche is talking about with this concept of the overman, and this continual pushing of not just the biological type, but also being the type of person you are now, pushing yourself hard to continually expand things. And so whether it's in athletics with people like Michael Phelps or Usain Bolt, or whether it's in uh, music with the development of, if you look at the development of classical music from, I don't know, you get Bach doing, doing his thing, and then you get Mozart sort of perfecting classical, and then Beethoven comes along and pushes the envelope even further and, and comes up with romantic music, and then Mahler comes along and sort of bridges a bit of the gap between uh, romantic and modern music, but you, you can see the sort of continual development of these different fields. And when it comes to philosophy, uh, one of Nietzsche's big ideas is that, and sort of the whole point of this lecture series, is that depending upon the way that people see reality, you will govern accordingly. So you're going to set up your institutions, you're going to set up your, your law courts, you're going to set up your educational systems, you're going to set up your laws based on the way that you and the people around you see reality. And Nietzsche says that it's philosophers who are the, the sort of people continually pushing the boundary of knowledge further and continually trying to see more into reality and understand reality better and that this progression, at least when it comes to philosophy, is the most—it's the most important one because ideas that come to philosophers or to prophets or to whatever are generally the ideas that become the 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 foundation upon which the people that govern and lead society then make their decisions. So, for example, a lot of the institutions that we currently have, whether it's uh, even even look at marriage. Like marriage, uh, prior to the last 20 years, was seen as between a man and a woman because that's a religious idea, and that those religious ideas were developed by some dude thousands of years ago who said that was a good idea. So because of the 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 actions of individuals and groups of people through time and the ideas that they have about reality, those ideas have rippling effects throughout the millennia in some cases. And so when we're looking at Zarathustra or we're looking at the person we're going to meet in the next section, sort of the holy man who lives in the forest, um, 
these are people who, for different worldviews, sort of take those to their logical conclusion, make decisions based on those. So their ethical actions, whether it's Zarathustra deciding to you know, distribute his message to mankind, even though he has to go into the depths and suffer a lot to do it, or the old man who decides to live in the forest. Those ethical decisions on what to do are guided by their philosophies, guided by the ways of doing things. And so when you're picturing uh, these characters, you keep that in mind when you're saying, okay, well, uh, is that, does this look good? Does this look bad? Does this make sense? Does this not make sense? Do I do this sort of thing? Do I not do this sort of thing? Because you can learn a lot from even just the basic actions that a Zarathustra character or the old man in the forest character or people from the mob that we're going to meet later are doing. And you can pick up a lot from those people. So I think that's good for this first section. Um, I tried to keep it a bit light. There is a bit more stuff that you can really dig into there. I think this is a pretty good section for even showing that individual sentences or individual metaphors can be expanded upon for five, ten minutes. So I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I hope that uh, you aren't scared off and that you enjoyed this. I, once we get through the prologue, which there's a lot more allegory and a bit less philosophy, it's sort of, a, sort of an overview in many ways of uh, Nietzsche's philosophy. Once we get into the actual uh, sections in the book about individual topics, it'll be a bit easier. And then some of the, these ideas, as you think about them and as you sort of go over them again and again and you try and build up a latticework upon, what the hell is this Nietzsche guy talking about? He's got this thing and this thing and this thing. And as your mind sort of works to put the pieces together and put the connections together and draw a comprehensive picture in your head of what he's doing, a lot of these things will come to be understandable to you and when you go through these books again or you go through these lectures again there might be a part in the book or a part of what I'm saying where you're like I don't know what the hell this guy's saying or why he's saying it um, those things will probably pop out to you as being important later on uh, that was certainly my experience with this book reading it again I, I told you in the introduction 30 plus times there are things even now that I still go to and I say, what the, heck, what the heck is he trying to say here? And just because I have a much more comprehensive knowledge of what Nietzsche is trying to say now than I did the first time I read it, I can sort of, it's just at the edge of my conceptual horizon and I can sort of grasp at it now. So thanks for joining. I will talk to you guys shortly in Zarathustra's prologue part two, where we meet the old holy man in the woods who is sort of the instantiation of the what the most intelligent person according to the old philosophy would do with his decisions and do with his life and how he would see things. This one is a great first introduction to the Zarathustra character and how he feels towards life based on his understanding of reality. So thanks for joining. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please make sure you go to the iTunes store and rate the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @alexjdrake. If you know of anyone that you think would like this show, please share with them. And for more information, you can visit me on my website at alexdrake.ca. Thanks, everyone.